0: From ESPN Films and ESPN Audio, you're listening to 30 for 30 Plus, presented by the Mini Countryman. My name is Jody Abergan. This is our series of bonus podcasts in between seasons, conversations between me and filmmakers about some recent ESPN films. We'll be doing these in the run-up to our next season of original documentaries, which return on November 14th. This week on 30 for 30 Plus, a conversation with director Mike Tolan, who spent 25 years following five up-and-coming Inglewood, California, basketball players as they
1: set their sights on the NBA and beyond. What's great about seeing the sweep of this film from 17 to past 40 is you see their dreams being nurtured, maybe, you know, sometimes unrealistically so. And you see these guys' lives after basketball. When Mike Tolan started filming in
0: 1992, the Morningside High basketball team were reigning state champions, and his five subjects, all returners, all felt that they were on their way to college basketball glory. Along the way, he captured some of the most intimate moments in their lives and documented the different directions their journeys would take them, from NBA tryouts to desperate comeback attempts, white-collar jobs to incarceration. His recent film on the lives of these athletes, is Morningside 5.
1: The visiting team is Morningside.
0: Everybody's going to want to knock us off and prove to everybody that they could beat us, the Morningside Monarchs, the state champs from 1992.
1: It was on TV, you know, ranked top 25 in the country, and they had five Division I players. Basketball, that was our lives. That was what was going to be the ticket to our dreams. Without sports, our basketball, I never thought about that kind of frightening, too.
0: I was wondering if we could start by asking you what your goal was going to film these five players originally way back in 1992, and then what ended up actually happening, how those two compared to each
1: other. This is going to sound quaint, cliched, predictable, obvious, but this is, you know, more than a quarter century ago. But I felt like playing out every year in the cities where kids of color, at-risk kids, using sports as a way out, as a way up. And basketball seemed to be the primary focus. So we looked around and we found a team from Morningside High School in Inglewood that had won the state championship in the spring of 1992. And the five primary players responsible for the title were all coming back. Nine o'clock in Los Angeles, California, and we've got the guys from Morning Side High. Hello. They were all being recruited. They all imagined themselves as the next Michael Jordan. We're the dream team of high school, you know. Talented, athletic, and a little dirty. With really one exception, none of them took any great interest in their classroom activities, and so this was the imbalance we were looking to. Illuminate.
0: We had the street in us. We played with a chip on our shoulders. That in-your-face, ghetto, aggressive basketball. I think you do a really good job in the film of not painting caricatures, not imposing a narrative. That said, you have kind of perfect casting in this group of five in terms of being able to tell a bunch of different stories you have a bunch of different personalities did
1: that just emerge naturally was that something you were expecting or or hunting for it really was uh, straight out of central casting you know there were rivalries there were friendships there was jockeying for position there were the alpha dogs stace bozeman was, you know, everyone's all American. And, uh, you know, and just matriculated through the ranks, you know, to get right there on the, on the precipice of an NBA career. Hey, what kind of pressure is that for a high school guy to get this much attention? It's a lot of pressure if you let it get to you. Dominic Ellison, he's one of those so close, could have been almost, you know, near misses. Having this, this responsibility on your shoulders and you're handling it. You know, as a young man, it's a tremendous highlight. Corey Saffold was six foot seven, played center, very, very talented compared to Scottie Pippen. They couldn't believe I could handle the ball and shoot from the outside like I did. They was mesmerized taking people off the dribble. Dwight Curry. He was uh, the unsung hero. He would scrap underneath and get loose balls and get garbage points. I kind of grew up with a chipping on a shoulder. You can either go left to jail or you can go right through sports. I think I found both. And Sean Harris was the five foot five point guard who, you know, controlled the game and was the floor general um, and kind of made everything click. You know, I think if you were doing a sociological study, um, the guys I'm describing probably fit more familiar profiles, but Sean confounded them all. He was the brain. He was a 4.3 GPA kid. Academics, that's, that's the main thing on my mind because I'm finna graduate and I want to graduate tops in my class. I don't want to settle for
0: second or third. Right now, I'm number one. As you said, you know, these kids were using basketball as a way to get out and they all had these high aspirations. We, yeah, we hadn't had that national conversation about that phenomenon and about the, the long odds that they faced. But you as a filmmaker going in, did you recognize that? Did you kind of have a sense of, oh man, these, these boys are deluding themselves?
1: Yes. I think to a man, the five starters of that Morningside team all believed in their heart that their NBA aspirations were reasonable. The least likely is Sean Harris, who was the five foot five point guard. And he says it point blank when challenged by Digger Phelps, who had gone from being a very high profile college basketball coach at Notre Dame, his team broke the UCLA eighty eight game win streak. He was coming through LA and he came to Morningside and we put together basically a roundtable meeting where he sat with the entire team and just kind of read them the riot act. There's 5,000 college seniors every year, and guess how many get drafted? Less than 60. Fact. So how many are going to sign? Maybe 30 and make it out of 5,000. And then he points to Sean Harris, the five foot five point guard and says so how many five foot five guys have there been in nba history you're a senior five foot five do you think you're really gonna play in the nba how many five foot five guys in the nba well two or three two or three so you're you're gonna be the next one and sean shakes his head up and down yep get focused get ready with a backup do both What's great about seeing the sweep of this film from 17 to past 40 is you see the birth of their dreams. You see their dreams being nurtured, maybe, you know, sometimes unrealistically so. You see one of them getting very, very close to making the NBA. And you see these guys' lives after basketball. It's not they made the NBA, therefore they are a success, or they didn't make the NBA, therefore they are a failure. I think what we're creating is a portrait of success. They really did give you
0: access in a way that's really remarkable. I mean, you were there when there's a fight in the locker room.
1: Hey, sit down. Come on. Sit down!
0: You're there when one of the players is reunited with his kind of long-lost father
1: when I met him at the game I was super pissed off like, I've never seen my father before that never talked to him nothing and to meet him like that like after a basketball game in front of everybody in front of the whole gym
0: did it take a long time to get that kind of intimacy
1: yeah you know it's really a matter of trust Essentially, there are three primary shooting periods 92, 93, and then 10 years later. And then we started again what would be 20 years later. But yeah, you're right. I think there was, um, in the early going, it was just like, you know, high school kids who thought, wow, we're going to be TV stars. This is cool. You know, I don't think they really quite understood, you know, what the repercussions, ramifications, whatever. I think it was just kind of a lark and it was something to brag about. The second time, they were a little more. Mm, circumspect Um, I think that was probably the hardest era because their lives were very much in flux by this time uh, yeah they really opened up to us I I I was blown away by how reflective Stace and Don and really all of them were at their current age coming up
0: after the break what the
1: Morningside High
0: story says about the responsibility coaches and colleges have to star athletes and I asked director Mike Tolan about another film he made, which led to an encounter with Donald Trump.
1: I took my swing at the NBA, and you know, it's hit and miss. I missed. Though I wish I would have done something differently. I think everybody do, but I'm content.
0: Throughout the film, I was just trying to grapple with you said they're very reflective, which is clear. And, and the trust that you'd built with them paid off in that regard. How much of an element of regret is is part of this story?
1: Well, not much regret, to be honest. Um, you know, when I talked to Stace, who had the most talent and came the closest, you know, do you regret putting all your eggs in one basket? He talks very openly about Digger Phelps's speech in which he focuses on the need to have a plan B. What do you think your life will be after basketball? Or do you think you're going to be a 40-year-old veteran of the NBA? Be honest with me. What have you thought about? What's your backup? You know, put your heart and soul into basketball, but but get an education, get a degree, make sure you have something to fall back on. Stace says um, in the same conversation, Digger was right. Digger hit it right on the money you got to have a backup plan to your backup plan. For every LeBron that made it, it's like a million LeBrons that thought they was LeBrons and was going to make it. Probably had the talent to make it, but something happened along the way. But he also says, let's be honest and realistic about this. In 1993, um, at Morningside High School, in that environment, how many of those kids had a plan A? He said, like, you know, you're talking about a plan B and a plan C. Who had a plan A except for us? At least we had a very clearly defined direction, which got us to the next level. And you know, then what you make of it is is everything. But like, you can't you can't regret it. What's your backup? I'll probably try to be a counselor. Counseling? Yeah. To work with youth, adults, youth. So make a difference. Does
0: this story tell us anything? kind of larger about the responsibility that the pro leagues or even college coaches have to young kids with a dream like this. You talked about kind of 1992 being the first time we had that bigger conversation as a country about this ecosystem and this business that does this to young kids. Has that changed in any way in the years since?
1: Uh, I think coaches have an opportunity, therefore a responsibility uh, to give their kids a more holistic Approach than most do. Meaning they're so focused on one loss record, recruiting the next great kid, um, trying to win a state title, trying to keep the pipeline full. But yeah, you have a chance to be a role model that's maybe more impactful than a parent or than any other teacher. I want to single out a guy named Seth Berger, who I've gotten to know, who coaches at a school in Pennsylvania called Westtown. Um, which is very much outside the mold. He's always said, I'd prefer a good player and a great kid to a great player and a good kid. These kids, some of them are not going to play basketball even in college or certainly beyond it. And my responsibility is to make sure their dreams and hopes are realistic, to expose them to as much of the world as I can. And he's, a, he's an educator and he's a leader and uh, he's a great role model. I, I wish there were more coaches like him. So while I have you here,
0: I do want to ask you a question about a previous film you did for ESPN Films, "A 30 for 30, on the USFL, which is the United States Football League, a startup football league. Uh, you want to take a wild crack at why I'm asking you about the USFL?
1: Oh, I think you were just, you know, wanted to recount all of the USFL players who uh, ended up in the NFL Hall of Fame. Is that right?
0: No, it has a little bit to do with um, the fact that Donald Trump was a big part of the USFL and you had a particular experience uh, in reporting out this piece and an encounter with Donald Trump prior to any political aspirations. So, I mean, how do you look back? Well, so tell people the story and then how do you look back
1: at that encounter? The beginning of the story is that when 30 for 30 was started nearly a decade ago, I was asked to be part of the producing group. And Connor Shell and Bill Simmons said, well, you should direct one also. Why don't you do one? You, you ran, I, I ran the USFL production group for the three years of its existence, 83, 4, and 5. Why don't you do that? And I said, well, the fact is I did that for three years. I kind of felt like I told every story there there really was to tell except one thing. And they said, what's that? I said, well, the only way I'd really be interested in revisiting that turf after all these years um, is if I could do a film tentatively titled Who Killed the USFL and go after the guy who clearly killed the USFL. Now, when this conversation was being had in 2008, you know, we all snickered and laughed about the real estate mogul, just a guy that had funny hair and loved to get himself in the tabloids. So they said, go for it. And I went for it. And, um, you know, we interviewed a large cross-section of people involved with the league. And most people did point to the fact that Donald Trump, who bought the New Jersey Generals, never really wanted to be a part of an alternative league or a spring league. He just wasn't able to get himself invited into the NFL. So this was his backdoor way of forcing his way in.
0: Frankly, uh, I would have been better off if I just went in and bought an NFL team. It would have been a lot easier.
1: His dream was to to be in the national football. and they didn't want him. I still feel and will always feel that his ambitions, his personal ambitions, were what sunk the league. And then when he saw it wasn't going to happen, he bullied his other owners into waging an antitrust lawsuit against the NFL as a way to force their hand of inviting a handful of teams, kind of like the way the NFL invited certain AFL teams into the fold and the way the NBA invited certain ABA teams into the fold. Um, They technically won the lawsuit, but the judge ruled that the USFL really shot itself in the foot um, that the damages incurred were mostly self-inflicted. And so he awarded a $1 settlement because it was an antitrust lawsuit. It's treble damages. So they got a $3 check for the millions of dollars they spent trying to fight the NFL and Donald trying to get his himself into the NFL. So that was the end of the league. That clearly, definitively, directly led to the dev- demise of the league. My last interview was with Donald at the top of the Trump Tower. We're going to do this quickly, right? Where's my camera? How come it's not on a stand? Are they the same camera? We had a, I don't know, 45 minutes to an hour interview. I pretty much had everything I wanted.
0: A couple more questions and I want to get out of here.
1: We've had enough of this. And so I figured now we're in the bonus round. I got, I got all of that, three cameras blazing. And so I pulled the check out of my research folder and handed it to him and said, well, Donald, I don't know if you've seen this lately, but here's all that's left of our little league. And I handed him the check, which was now $3.76. It, had, it accrued interest over the two and a half decades. And he promptly got up and walked out and patted me condescendingly on the shoulder and said, ah, it was just small potatoes. Would have been small potatoes. Have a good time. So when I sent him a, a note, Inviting him to the premiere of the film in New York, he wrote me back. But, you know, Donald Trump doesn't write letters back on his own stationery. He writes on your letter. I mean, you can look this up. I'm. I'm He's famous
0: for doing this. He will write on uh, an article that he rips out of a magazine or a letter you've sent him. He'll write back on it in
1: his Sharpie. Big, bold, black Sharpie. Best wishes, Donald Trump. P.S. You are a loser. The letter is framed and in the corner of my my office, but it is now turned around backwards in a silent protest.
0: So that's a fun story. I mean, it's a remarkable moment. But like, did you recognize anything in the Donald Trump that you were covering? Did you recognize anything there that has carried through to his presidency?
1: Same guy. Absolutely the same guy. That was, you know, 1983, 84. So we're talking about 33 years ago. Uh, Impatient, narcissistic. Should I keep going? Maybe I should stop before I get into any more trouble. But um, it's really sad to say this about, you know, our commander in chief. But um, it is what it is.
0: Well, we'll end on that note, but also I do want to bring it back to you know your new film. People can go watch uh, the USFL film um, online, but of course your new film, Morningside 5, um, people will get a chance to see that now, and we really do encourage them to do that because there is a lot of humanity in, in that film. I think it's really impressive. So I really appreciate you um, coming
1: on to talk about it. Thanks. I enjoyed it.
0: That's Mike Tolan, director of the recent ESPN film Morningside 5, which is available in the ESPN app. He also directed Small Potatoes, Who Killed the USFL, which you can find in iTunes. And again, if you haven't listened to our podcast documentaries from season one, you can hear them now at 30for30podcast.com slash season one or by clicking the link in the show description. My name is Jody Avergan. This episode was produced in association with Transmitter Media, Greta Cohn, and Katie Simon. Production also provided by Ryan Nantel and Kate McAuliffe, with help from Vin D'Anton, Jenna Anthony, Colin Fleming, Aaron Leiden, Taylor Barfield, Tony Chow, and Alex Bowen. Special thanks to Annie Chelsea. Our theme music is by Rishikesh Hirwe of Song Exploder. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next
1: week with more 30 for 30 Plus.